From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we revisit our archives for a 2012 interview with artist, cartoonist, and animator Nina Paley, creator of the animated film Sita Sings the Blues, based on the ancient story of the Ramayana. We talk about faith, the twists and turns of copyright law, and trusting your own inner creative mojo to save you from disaster. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're revisiting an interview that I did in 2012 during our first season. We'll be speaking today with Nina Paley, who is an artist and animator who's now based in Urbana, Illinois. But in her personal odyssey, she has traveled from California to Trivandrum, India, and back to New York, uh, all in the process of having some very, very difficult personal aspects of her life turn inside out. Now, what uh, we're talking about in this interview is how she transformed that personal tragedy into one of my favorite pieces of recent animated artwork, uh, a long-form film called Sita Sings the Blues, an animated interpretation of one of the oldest narratives in human culture, the Ramayana, which tells the story of Rama and Sita and their family. Uh, partially gods and partially people living through very, very human foibles and tragedies. And it's a favorite in our household. My my five-year-old and my three-year-old are big fans. Um, this was a very important interview for me uh, just personally because I was just starting out the show in 2012 and just listening to Nina talk about her own trust in herself and her vision was very inspiring to me. And I'm happy to share this interview with you today and I hope that you also are inspired. Well, Nina Paley, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Ramayana, could you briefly tell the story of Sita? Well, Sita is the wife of Rama. Rama is (laughs) an incarnation of uh, the god Vishnu. Um, There's no real simple way to explain the story. Um, it's It's an epic it's one of the two uh, epics of the two major epics of India. Um, but Rama is a king, and Sita is his wife, and Rama is exiled from his kingdom for 14 years. Uh, his real purpose in life is to slay the evil demon king Ravana. Ravana falls in love with Sita and abducts her, and Rama has to rescue her, vanquish Ravana, and return to rule the kingdom. And most tellings of the Ramayana focus on Rama. I mean, that's what the Ram and Ramayana is. It's about Rama. Uh, and Sita is, uh, she's sort of the epitome of the suffering, devoted wife. And she's exiled. Her husband doesn't trust her. Uh, Ravana, this demon, abducts her. Um, Largely because she is so beautiful, she's the most beautiful woman in the world, that's actually why she's so mistreated. That's why she's abducted. That's why her husband doesn't trust her. Uh, Later in the story, Rama exiles her again, because either because he doesn't trust her or because his subjects just don't want a king king whose queen has lived in another man's house. Um, And... uh, well, I don't want to give away the ending of the story, but basically she's just a super sufferer. She is the ultimate suffering wife. Well, now, I'm, I'm assuming that you didn't grow up in Hindu culture reading these sorts of texts. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> so h- how did you come to have this level of involvement and intimacy with this particular story? Well, in 2002, I flew to Trivandrum, India, to be with my husband at the time. And I was just interested in 
the culture around me when I was living there. And it started with comic books. Uh, there are comic books of lots and lots of uh, important Hindu epics and other stories. And uh, one of the first ones I read was some chapters from the Ramayana, and I was stunned by how little space was given to Sita. I remember reading, uh, I think the book was called Sons of Rama, which is the later part of the story. And Sita calls upon Mother Earth to take her back into her womb. Sita's mother is the Earth. Um, and all of this takes like two panels, and then the story about Rama continues. And I thought, this, is, this seems like it's really important. This seems like a whole lot more space should be given to this character. And I would ask my friends there, like, is, is this really part of the story? Is this just some strange thing that the comic book added? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that happens in the story. And I was like, well, why aren't you talking about this all the time? This seems really important. Um, so I became interested in it when I was there. Then I went back to the U.S. for a business meeting, and my husband dumped me by email and uh, because Sita is this, you know, oft-rejected character who throws herself on a funeral pyre when her own husband rejects her, I found myself relating to the character in a very different way. And uh, I developed yet another deeper obsession with the story as I was going through my own grief of separation uh, and divorce from my husband. So let me make sure that I'm clear uh, and, and have followed so you were looking at a, a comic book version of the Ramayana, and it devoted just a, a very little bit of space to the story of Sita. But within the Ramayana itself, does she play a major part, or is she also still just a minor character there in the story? Sita plays a major part in text versions, but nonetheless, um, her part is mostly to drive the story of Rama to drive Ram's actions and Ravana's actions. But, you know, there are so many different versions of the Ramayana. And I have to say, this comic book was just my introduction to it. Even when I was still living in Trivandrum, I was reading as many text versions as I could. And then when I moved to New York, I had access to NYU's library, and I got tons, you know, anything, any Ramayana that was in English uh, that I could get my hands on, I read. So I've read many, many text versions. Um, and they vary. Uh, but actually, um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was always focusing on Sita's part in the text because I was obsessed with Sita specifically. So I think of it as, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of words are devoted to Sita, but then a lot more words <laughs> are devoted to Rama and his brother Lakshman and... Uh, Hanuman, the monkey warrior. Um, so Sita's not a minor character, but she's not the main character, for sure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Nina Paley, creator of the feature-length animated film Sita Sings the Blues. One of the most delightful aspects of the film for me is this narration that you just mentioned that's provided by the Shadow Puppets. Now, in actuality, these shadow puppets, their voices were recordings that you made of an unscripted conversation. Um, but let's let's take a moment and listen to a, a bit of, of the way that they choose to tell the story. When? I don't remember what year. There's no year. How do you know there's a year for that? I think they say the 14th century. but The 14th century was recently. No, but I don't know. That's, That's when the, the, the Mughals were ruling. Babur was in India. <laughs> it's definitely BC. <laughs> it's BC for sure. And I think it's Ayodhya. And Sri Lanka. I know that because they raised that temple. <laughs> they said that Ram was born there. Which I don't believe. But that's what they say. And Ayodhya is in the state of Uttar Pradesh. It's right there. Therefore, the story has to be true. It's probably based on as real as event as the Bible is based on. You want to know the whole story? Now, they don't always agree in the telling of the story. In fact, they often contradict details and fill in gaps for each other. So what was the attraction for you of including this way of telling Sita's story, of having these 
contradictory Indian voices that are sort of telling the story on top of each other. Well, when I was working on the movie, I talked to as many Indians in New York as I could about the story, and they argued, uh, especially men and women argued with each other. When I would have test screenings of the work in progress, I was showing clips, uh, almost inevitably an older Indian man would come up to me after the screening and start explaining why Ram did what he did and have I read the Ramayana and surely I must understand this or that. And then frequently his wife would come up and start arguing with him right in front of me. So um, women and men tend to have very different interpretations of uh, the characters in the story, especially Rama and Sita. Men will frequently defend Rama and women will frequently defend Sita or sort of champion Sita, um, or I guess, uh, uh, you know, point out that Sita was not treated fairly. <laughs> um, so would you consider this to be sort of a men are from Mars, women are from Venus sort of difference, or is there is there a different cultural dynamic going on there? Um, well, I... Uh, well, I don't really like the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, but um, uh, different cultural dynamic. Uh, it seems fairly universal. It's just that in the U.S., people are not very familiar with the Ramayana story. I imagine uh, if we were, there would probably be a similar split here as well. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, the universal dynamic that you see at work when this older gentleman and his wife would come up and begin to argue in front of you is that the story of Sita seems to read differently if you are coming from a female perspective or a male perspective. Have I heard that correctly? Yes. And and your your claim is that that difference in perspective is sort of a universal human perspective that is actually reflected in the Ramayana itself. Well, I think so. But also, I would say the more patriarchal a society is, the, the bigger... Uh, what there's going to be in interpretations. I suppose in some ideal egalitarian society, uh, there wouldn't be as much dispute over it. But um, large, <laughs> large modern societies um, tend to have, you know, very patriarchal histories. And how did it make you feel when you saw these arguments going on? Did it make you uncomfortable, or did it did it excite you because it was it was a part of the creative process for you? No, it didn't make me uncomfortable. It was it was funny. I mean, a lot of um, I felt very natural in these arguments, and it's possible that one reason why is even though I wasn't raised religious, I was raised um, observing Passover. So the one sort of religious ish holiday that my family observed, we would always argue. We would we would have these very lively discussions that were fun. Um, so arguing about religion is, you know, especially because people would usually do it with a sense of humor. Um, I, I like that a lot. <laughs> uh, so I felt very much at home in these conversations about the Ramayana. Um, sometimes they would get very heated, but I like that. It reminds me of my own uh, family and upbringing. If you're just joining us, we're listening to a rebroadcast of a 2012 interview with Nina Paley, the artist and animator who is best known for an animated work called Sita Sings the Blues, which retells the story of the Ramayana. Since airing our interview in 2012, Paley has been at work on new religiously themed animated movies. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we will be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with animator and cartoonist Nina Paley. She's best known for an animated feature called Sita Sings the Blues. Since our interview aired in 2012, she's been at work on a new animated feature that also has a historical and religious theme called This Land is Mine. You can find out more at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I was noticing in the film, it, it seemed as if there were multiple versions of this story sort of flowing and weaving around your animated version of it, but also it just seemed to be sort of flowing out of the the story itself. There were there were different voices that would highlight different details, and so you you reflect this uh, in the making of the film in some in some pretty uh, 
some pretty integral stylistic ways. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about how the multiple versions of the Ramayana sort of affected the way that you chose to make the film itself. Yeah, okay. Well, I came to the story when I was 35, so I was not raised with it. And um, there is no single Ramayana. I mean, it's, the story is thousands of years old. Uh, the first time it was written down was a couple thousand years ago. Scholars argue about this. Uh, it was an oral tradition long before that. And there is no single canonical version of the Ramayana. There are just many, many, many different versions. Um, and uh, it's from a... The, the story is told in this huge region. Um, I mean, most of the world is familiar with this story, and it's uh, popular in India uh, and Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, countries that are not predominantly Hindu anymore still have very strong Ramayana traditions. So there's thousands of years and thousands of miles of Ramayana art and... Um, you know, every telling of the story reflects the society, the time that's telling it. Um, so certainly with the visual art, there are huge differences in visual representations of Sita. Uh, and I wanted to include a, a little sample of those in the film. So there's this tradition of Mughal painting, um, because there was this time uh, in Indian history where the the wealthiest rulers were actually uh, Muslims. Um, and many very important Ramayana manuscripts were commissioned by Muslims, and the art is sort of Persian-influenced. Um, and so Sita will be shown with these sort of downcast eyes and this modest dress. Um, and... Uh, that's rather different from the text itself, which describes her as being quite uh, sort of luscious and sexy. Um, then there are shadow puppets. Uh, one of the shadow puppets, of one of the narrator shadow puppets is based on Malaysian shadow puppet, based on Sita, and that, that looks quite different. The text itself conjures this very beautiful, you know, womanly, narrow-waisted, full-breasted, uh, goddess figure, and I played on that in another visual style, the visual style where she's singing. Um, uh, and, you know, I like how these different interpretations of Sita kind of contrast with each other. She's still the same character, but uh, everybody has sort of a different idea of who Sita is. And I don't really know... Um, I can't really explain in words why I thought that would be a good idea, but I did think it would be a good idea to represent her in all these different ways, and it worked. But you kind of have to see the film to see it work. You mentioned that, that you were raised uh, observing some of the Jewish holidays, but not really as a very religious person. But did you find that your religious sentiments in some way shifted while you were making the film? Uh, were you affected by these texts from the Ramayana or drawn to them in some way that, that uh, affected you on a spiritual level, not just an artistic or an intellectual level? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm not immersed in it now, but while I was working on the film, I just saw everything in terms of, I don't know what to call it, uh, I don't know, in terms of that system of understanding. Um, I mean, I thought of being, I thought of certain behaviors as, uh, what do they call them? Austerities. That's right. There's um, all these stories of characters performing austerities, usually for Shiva, uh, and they are rewarded with boons. So when I was working on the film itself, I pretty much shut myself out of um, out of normal life. I lived as a hermit, and I was just devoted to making the film, and. I thought, well, I'm just, you know, I'm performing austerities, right? Like like any hermit would do. And perhaps I will get a boon or perhaps not. And I had this this um uh I mean, I don't how can I say it? Like when I when I talk about religion, I don't want to talk about it seriously. I I take it all very metaphorically. Um uh but I was just steeped in these metaphors and I 
imagined the gods, whoever they are, the gods, uh, really, really liking the story of the Ramayana. And it says right in the Ramayana, all versions of the Ramayana talk about what a great story it is and how blessed whoever retells the story will be. And um, I thought, well, the gods like the story of the Ramayana so much that they're you know, using people, including me, to retell the story over and over and over again. I was tired of it, and I thought, I'll just, I'll just make the gods a movie. And then they can just hit rewind and replay if they want to see it again, and I myself will not have to be playing out this drama in my own relationships over and over again. This is, this is fascinating to me. So if, if I've heard you correctly, you entered into this narrative as a religious narrative, but playfully, and, you, and I, I heard clearly that you don't want to put too much weight on this as a religious action, the making of the film, but you still found the narratives to be uh, something that could be played with, and your way of playing it with, with it was to say, okay, in the wider sweep of this narrative, we as human beings are caught up in the drama of retelling this story because the gods like it so much, and maybe if we could just make it into a new medium and tell it into a new space where there's the possibility of rewinding it, we, we humans won't have to do this anymore. So that, that's both playful and serious, it sounds like. Uh, yes. I mean, I think, um, I think many of us are still <laughs> acting out this story. But it was, it was just my attempt um, to try to get out of it a little bit. Also, it was really cathartic to make it. I mean, um, I, I believe that everybody has an inner Sita and... Um, well, I guess uh, I'm not giving away too much. I've already said that Sita calls on Mother Earth to take her back into her womb. So there's this scene where Sita returns to Mother Earth. And when I was animating that, I was like, okay, I'm now killing my inner Sita. Um, but in killing her, you know, she's now elevated to uh, a goddess. And I don't know, I think Joseph Campbell can talk about how... <laughs> talk more about how that works for humans psychologically, but there was something very profound for me about doing that, very liberating. Well, and you mentioned that while you were thinking about this in, in the playful sense, uh, part, of, part of what you were sort of saying to yourself was, maybe if I arrange this story in the right way, I'll get a, I'll get a blessing out of it. Was that, was that uh, catharsis that you mentioned the blessing? Um... Uh... Hmm. Or, do, or do you feel like you've received a blessing? Or well, I... yes, I certainly feel like I've, I mean, my life changed dramatically and amazingly and unexpectedly. Like I thought, okay, I'll do this and, you know, my man problems will be over. Um, and uh, it wasn't, it didn't quite go like that, but my life changed so much. I mean, I am so grateful for the experiences that led me to make that film. I'm grateful to my ex-husband for, you know, dumping me. Because uh, even though it was very painful, it just changed my life for the better in so many ways, and it led me to make that film, and it just changed my life. Um, but, uh, I mean, I certainly didn't get what I expected. <laughs> You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Nina Paley, creator of the feature-length animated film Sita Sings the Blues. It's amazing that you can come back at the at the end of that process and and see it in such a positive light. It's very clear from the film how painful a process that was for you. And uh, I, just on a personal level, want to express, uh, you know, I, that I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you. But I'm I'm very happy to hear you say that here at the end of the process, you you feel that it was a blessing, and that the pain that it caused you has led to uh, good good and bounteous things in your life. And I really did, I mean, I'm not carrying that anymore. Uh, I made a film of it and shared it with an audience, and then the audience sort of carried all that away for me. So now if the audience wants to relive that pain, they can hit rewind, but you don't have to hit rewind anymore. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, I mean, that was another sort of profound thing about working with this story. Um, I mean, the whole uh, release of the movie really changed my ideas about art and audiences and culture. Well, it, it would be impossible to talk about your film, Cita Sings the Blues, without talking about the music of Annette Hanshaw. 
So let's take a moment and listen to a bit of one of the Annette Hanshaw songs you include in the film. So what attracted you specifically to Annette Hanshaw's songs? Why did you choose to make them such a central part of the film Sita Sings the Blues? Well, what happened was after my husband dumped me by email, I was sort of stuck in New York. I couldn't go back to my apartment or our apartment in San Francisco because we had sublet it, uh, and I couldn't go back to India. So I was sofa surfing in New York, and one of the homes I was staying at was uh, record collectors. And he actually had uh, original lacquer Annette Hanshaw records. So that was the first time I ever heard Annette Hanshaw. And uh, my friend played the song Mean to Me and laughed and said, Hey, Nina, that's your theme song. Uh, And it was true. (laughs) Um, And then that same friend gave me a CD of Annette Hanshaw songs, which was published in Canada. And I became obsessed with Annette Hanshaw. This is long before I ever wanted to make a feature film. Uh, I just happened at the time to be obsessed with the Ramayana and obsessed with Annette Hanshaw. After a few months of that, I put them together and went, hey, these are the same story. They're from completely different times and places, but these songs are telling the same story as the Ramayana. And Sita could be singing these songs. It's the blues. It's just all the blues. And I'm singing the blues, too. Um, so it's not like I had a movie I wanted to make and fit these things into it. I didn't want to make a movie. Uh, my obsessions just expressed themselves as a movie. So when those, those elements, the, the Ramayana story that you had been, uh, sort of, uh, swimming in and the Annette Hanshaw songs, when they suddenly came together and you saw that they were telling the same story and then you suddenly saw that that was also your story, what did that feel like for you? What what was that moment like for you? Um, hmm, well, it's not like it was one specific moment. It it started occurring to me that I could do this. And actually, I started by doing it as a short. One of the scenes in the movie, with the one to the song, Mean to Me, uh, that was its own short. Um, and I thought that was going to be it because I was not a feature filmmaker. I just made short films, short festival films. Um, it was later, it was in 2005, that I decided I was going to do a feature film. And uh, that moment was very scary and exciting. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I'd never done anything like that before. I didn't know how I was going to make money. I didn't know how I was going to pay rent. Uh but it just felt really, really right. It, when I thought about doing that, I got excited about life. And when I thought about doing anything else, I felt kind of sad and depressed. Um, and actually, I bought a ring. <laughs> when I finally decided to commit to it, I bought you know, a, a wedding band and just decided I was going to put this project first. And it worked. I mean, a lot of why I, I was in so much pain was because in my relationships, um, you know, I had been left, and it made me think a lot about commitment and how hard is it to make a commitment. 
and the commitment's supposed to be, you know, in sickness and in health and for richer, for poorer. And was I able to make that kind of commitment? So if I'm hearing you correctly, where other people might have said, oh, this is an idea that, you know, might be good for a hobby to do every once in a while, or this is an idea I'd love to do someday, there was something about this, and I, I really like the way that you phrased it, because you said when you thought about doing this, it made you feel excited and made you feel alive, and when you thought about doing anything else, it made you feel kind of down and sad. I, I think most people may have that kind of internal barometer, but they don't necessarily have the courage to follow it. And I wonder, can you tell our listeners where you think you got that, that courage to follow that internal barometer? Was it merely a fact of having come through this traumatic experience, or was there something else there as well that was added to the trauma that helped you to sort of see this project through? Well, I wasn't through the traumatic experience. Ah, I see. I was still in the trauma, and what enabled me to do it was I just had nothing left to lose. That was sort of a gift of the pain, um, no matter what I did. And remember, this was 2005, so this breakup happened in 2003. Um, or, sorry, it happened in 2002. And actually, I guess it was like the, you know, the winter just before 2005, so 2004, 2005. So a couple, more than two years had passed, mm. and I still wasn't over it. And uh, I had tried all kinds of things, and I thought, I really should be over this. But, you know, I just wasn't. Um, and uh, I didn't really have, I don't know, I felt like, you know, on the one hand it was a choice, but um, I had to do something that made me want to live because I was so, I was so... Um, I was just in so much grief and pain still. Uh, and, you know, I'm not in that kind of pain now, and I certainly don't miss it, but it certainly did clarify things at the time. And that is, again, why I say that I'm grateful that I, that I had all of that, because if I hadn't, um, I mean, it took that much to get me to do this. And I don't really know if I'm going to be driven like that to do something like this again because I I mean hopefully hopefully I won't be that devastated again I, I certainly I certainly hope not although I I do appreciate very much the the art that came out of that uh, I, I very much have enjoyed the film and so I I, I just want to say on a personal level how much I I appreciate your turning that that pain into something that was so enjoyable and and so easily shareable with others I'm I'm going I'm looking forward to actually uh, putting this out and, and helping to get the word out about it, uh, because I really do think that it's it's a it's a really fine piece of work. Well, thank you. And it's funny. I mean, that's where humor comes from, too. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2012 interview with Nina Paley, creator of the animated film Sita Sings the Blues. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with Nina Paley, artist and animator and creator of the film Sita Sings the Blues, based upon the ancient tale of the Ramayana. Before the break, we were discussing Paley's reasons for including the music of Annette Hanshaw in the film and the problems that ensued. You mentioned that the Annette Hanshaw music was part of the the seed crystal for this project, but including Annette Hanshaw's music also caused some difficulties. Uh, would you explain a little bit of what happened as a result of including her music in the project? Uh, yes. Okay, so all of Annette Hanshaw's songs were recorded in the late 20s, and they should have been in the public domain by the 1980s at the very, very latest. However, and- Congress has been retroactively extending copyright terms, so things that were supposed to be in the public domain will probably never enter the public domain. And for the sake of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with that term, what does the what does the term public domain mean? Public domain means uh, cultural works that anybody can use. For example, um, uh, you know, the Bible. You can you can quote text from most versions of the Bible freely. Uh, Shakespeare is in the public domain. You are free to quote or do whatever you want with Shakespeare. You do not have to pay licenses to the Shakespeare estate. But most works uh, that are less than 100 years old, usually they say, you know, from after 1923, but there's works that are older than that that are still in copyright. You have to pay licenses to someone, to some entity. Um, 
and that makes it very, very difficult to build on historical works. In the case of these Annette Hanshaw songs, um, they are owned by giant media conglomerates like Warner Chapel and Sony um, and EMI. And uh, for a small entity like me to license use from those huge corporations, um, they quoted me a price of about $220,000. So by licensed use, you, you mean they didn't say, no, you can't use the music. They said, oh, yes, please do use the music, but just pay us this amount of money. Uh, they, said, they said, give us $220,000 or your film is illegal. And the consequences for having an illegal film, even if it's not for commercial use, is up to five years in jail. Oh, my goodness. For non-commercial copyright infringement. So has, has that problem now been resolved? I'm assuming you didn't pay the $220,000, or did you? No, I didn't. Um, I ended up spending a year um, and hiring various professionals uh, who gave me bargain basement rates, but I still ended up paying $20,000 just for the intermediaries. Um, I ended up getting what's called a step deal. So uh, I ended up paying $50,000 to these various conglomerates in order to decriminalize the film. Um, not to, uh, you know, that, that wasn't to clear all uses of it. That was to clear non-commercial uses of it for $50,000. <laughs> it's now legal to share the film for free. Uh, for every copy of it sold, um, I have to pay whoever's selling it has to pay um, close to $2 to these various corporations which, of course, is a huge incentive to share it freely and a huge disincentive to sell copies. Uh, copies are available for sale. If people want to buy DVDs, um, you can get them uh, from the store link at seethesingsthablues.com. Um, uh, but you can share it for free, legally, because I spent um, $70,000 making it legal, $50,000 to these corporations and $20,000 to the intermediaries that got the deal all for work that should be in the public domain. Goodness gracious. Well, and, and so as a result of all of that process, and you mentioned that this, was, that this was emotionally cathartic in terms of making the film artistically, but it sounds like uh, it had to also be sort of financially cathartic because in order to, in order to have those kind of resources, um, you, you had mentioned at one point that you weren't sure how you were going to pay rent. Uh, moving from that to a place where you could actually uh, – amass and and bring those kind of sums to to this problem it seems like you got some of those those difficulties worked out yeah well first of all i went into debt mm. um but also uh i was a sort of an early example of crowdfunding i had a blog at the time this was before kickstarter existed and i was just posting about my work on the film and before that last $70,000 to clear stuff, I needed $30,000 to make a film print so it could have its premiere at the Berlin Film Festival. And I just said, I need money for this film. Any, you know, anybody who contributes X amount gets the credit of their choice in the film. And people responded. Yeah, and I started getting audience support. Wonderful. Um, but for that, for that last whopper to make the film legal, for people to share online. And again, that took another year. So the film was done in 2008. It was doing festivals all of 2008. Um, but it wasn't legal to uh, share outside of film festivals until the spring of 2009. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with animator and filmmaker Nina Paley. We'll return to the conversation after a short break. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, we have over 50 shows archived on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and they're all free and available for download. And if you want to carry them along with you, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. 
Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all the catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to animator and filmmaker and copyright activist Nina Paley. She's the creator of the animated film Sita Sings the Blues, which is based on the ancient story of the Ramayana. It also incorporates the music of blues musician Annette Hanshaw. It was the inclusion of this music that created the copyright trouble that we've been discussing. Do you think Sita Sings the Blues functions as a religious film, or should it simply be seen as an artistic expression, or would you say that I shouldn't even make such distinctions? Well, I don't recommend it as a religious film. I mean, no, it's it's not a religious film. My When I started learning about the Ramayana, um, it's a story. Uh, the, the exclusive Hindu fundamentalist claim on the story is kind of odd, because like I said before, the story is told in countries that are Muslim and Buddhist as well as Hindu. And when I was living in Trivandrum in India, uh, it was as much a part of uh, Christian and Muslim culture there as it was Hindu culture. Nobody was making any distinctions there about who this story belongs to. It's, it was just everyone's. Um, and that's true in most of South and Southeast Asia. It's story. Um, so the, the idea that this was an exclusively Hindu story, an exclusively religious scripture, uh, that idea mostly seems to be spouted by more Hindu fundamentalists. Um, and I don't even know how these people feel about the fact that you know, this is all over Indonesia and Malaysia, um, and that some of the greatest Ramayana manuscripts were, you know, actually commissioned by Muslims. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, no, I don't. I don't think it's. I mean, it's culture. <laughs> it's religious to some, and it's not religious to others. And you know, it's it's an important cultural work. Well, you mentioned the, the Hindu fundamentalists and their their sense of ownership over the story of the Ramayana. Were you aware of these politics when you were making the film, or did you did you become aware of them in, in the, the aftermath of making the film, and you encountered a political backlash once you started to, to show it? I became aware of it while I was making the film. How so? Um, and increasingly... Oh, how, how did I become aware of it? Oh, yes. because... Um, I would, uh, it became known that I was working on this film. I was posting clips. And, um, you know, there are Hindu fundamentalists just ready to, ready to go. (laughs) They're just ready to, ready to scream and yell. And the screaming and yelling started while the movie was actually in progress. So you would get negative comments online, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, threats, actually. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, But the thing is that I knew lots of Hindus. I knew and know lots of Hindus. I did not know Hindu fundamentalists. These are not the same thing. I mean, Hindu is to Hindu fundamentalist as Christian is to KKK, kind of. Um, You have this tiny little minority of people that claim that they speak for all Hindus, and they really don't. Um, And unfortunately, it's very confusing to a lot of Americans because um, there are not that many Hindus in America, and there's a lot of Americans that don't have any Hindu friends, and uh, you have these fundamentalist groups, um, in, you know, claiming that they are speaking for Hindus, and I, you know, there are some well-meaning Americans that say, like, oh, this upsets Hindus, and no, it doesn't. It upsets Hindu fundamentalists, 
uh, not the same thing. And so for those who, who maybe don't fall into the category of Hindu fundamentalists, and it's, it's clear what their reaction is, but what has been the reaction to your film from those who were raised with these stories who don't fall into that fundamentalist category? Uh, it's been varied. Um, I would say the biggest fans of the movie uh, are Hindus. Biggest critics of the movie are Hindus. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of Hindus that just go, eh, you know, this just isn't working for me. Mm. Um, where they're not outraged or anything, but it's just kind of meh. Uh, a lot of... Um, sort of second-generation, diasporic Indians really like it because it is such a cultural mashup. I mean, it does mix together very, very American and very, very Indian elements. Um, and that kind of reflects uh, second-generation immigrant experience. Well, you, you mentioned that, that part of what went into the making of this film was a real playfulness on your part with the narrative, and you didn't feel beholden to any one particular version, nor did you feel beholden to making this a particularly religious story. Do you think that the, the positive and negative reaction of the various viewers sort of tracks along the lines of whether or not they understand and maybe share in that playfulness? Or Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot about like why do I love this mashup stuff so much um, and again I spent years just immersed in this and um, spending a lot of time with second generation Indians I mean all of the actors all the voice actors are second generation Indians um, some of the musicians as well uh, and I you know I thought well I'm a third generation immigrant I mean my father's parents were from Russia and um you know, it made me think a lot more about my own family's history and what happened to religion in my own family. Um, you know, just uh, my father's parents were very religious, and yet here I am. You know, I was raised with hardly any religion at all, and I could see this happening all around me with my uh, Indian friends, where their parents would be much more religious than them, and there would be this real, you know, all these attempts of the of the immigrant parents, um, this pressure on the kids to preserve the culture, preserve the religion, um, and the kids were busy checking out all the all the melting pot stuff, all the American stuff all around them, um, and they weren't really as Indian as the parents would have liked. Um, but they were really, you know, really embracing uh, all this other art and culture that was all around them. And, you know, I, I have done the same thing. I'm just one generation down. Um, so I'm not completely distant from my grandparents' religion and culture, uh, but I am descended from people that embraced, they embrace what's here and mixed with it. Well, you, you've written on your website that you think that art has no life if people can't share it. And I wonder here, as we're, as we're coming to a close, Nina Paley, how best would you like this work of yours, Sita Sings the Blues, to be shared? What is your vision for it? Uh, I want it to be shared any way possible. Um, I love it when people just copy and share it with each other, please burn it onto hard drives and CDs or whatever format people are using. Um, I also like it when people remix it and turn it into new works. All of the flash files that I use to make the film are free on archive.org. So if you use Flash or some other kind of vector animation software, you can just open those files and turn them into something else. Uh, it's completely free to reuse the art any way you want. The only part of the film that's not free is the music. Um, I'm, I just hope it's copied and shared in ways that I can't even imagine today. Well, Nina Paley, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. We've been listening to a rebroadcast of our 2012 interview with artist, cartoonist, and animator Nina Paley. She is the creator of the animated film Sita Sings the Blues. She's currently at work on a new animated film, 
Seder masochism, a somewhat irreverent take on the Exodus narrative. You can view one short piece from that called This Land is Mine through her website ninapaley.com and also through our website thingsnotseenradio.com. On Thursday, March 26th, Nina Paley will be the keynote speaker at the Faith and Spirituality Center at the University of Calgary. You can find out more at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Jim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.